0: I named this sermon, Contagious Faith. And contagious faith is subtle and slow, but once in motion, it cannot be stopped. It's like a seed planted in the ground one season, and next season, it blooms. The faith that the book of Joshua had is a kind of faith, or militaristic faith, that slaughters men, women, and children, as the book of Joshua reveals. But the contagious faith that I will speak about is not the kind of faith that takes lives. But the kind of faith that preserves life. And the reason it preserves life is because women are leading the way and not men. We will see that their contagious faith sets in motion the liberation of Israel from Egypt. Uh, Pastor Chela was supposed to read this, but she got sick of the verses. So I'm going to have my wife uh, uh, read the verses here. Great. You can probably do this. Thank you.
1: Okay, Exodus 1, verses 8 through 17, and then 21 and 22. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who knew not Joseph. And he said unto his people, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely with them. Least they multiply, and in the event of war, they also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. So they anointed the taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor. And they built for Pharaoh storage cities, Pithom and Ram- Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied. That's important to know. And the more they spread out, so they were in dread of the sons of Israel. And then the Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously, and they made their lives bitter with hard labor and mortar and bricks and all kinds of labor in the field, all their labor which they rigorously imposed on them. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of the whom was named Shipra, and the other was named Pua, and he said, when you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see upon the and see them upon the birth stool if it is a son then she'll put him to death but if it is a daughter then she shall live So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and they said to them why have you done this thing and let the boys live and the midwife said to Pharaoh because the Hebrew women are not this is really important Because the Hebrew women are not as Egyptian women, for they are vigorous. They give birth before the midwives can get to them. So God was good to the midwives, and he gave them families. Then Pharaoh Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, every son who is born to the Hebrews, you are to cast into the Nile, and every daughter you are to keep alive. Okay, now I'm going to read Hebrews, I mean, two uh, chapters, I mean, chapter 2, 1 and 10. Now, a man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi, and the woman conceived and bore a son. When she saw that he he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she took him to a wicker basket and covered it over with tar and pitch. Then she put the child into it, and set it among the reeds of the bank of the Nile. And the sister stood at a distance to find out what would happen to him. Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the Nile with her maid servants walking along the Nile. And she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid and she brought it to her. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the boy was crying and her heart was moved and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that she may nurse a child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So that the girl went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child, nurse him for me, and I shall give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And <clears throat> excuse me. And the child grew and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son and she named him Moses. And he said, because I drew him out of the water.
0: If, if, if anybody has seen the 10 Commandments on TV, you know this story, uh, Exodus 1 and 2. <laughs> and it comes out every year, so you should know it. Okay, this story opens up with the statement that a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Joseph was one of the 12 sons of Jacob who had risen to the status of rulership in Egypt. During a famine, Jacob and his sons leave uh, Canaan and resettle in Egypt where Joseph provides for them, uh, since Joseph was in Egypt. But the opening of our story in Exodus suggests that all this had been forgotten. Crisis is introduced at the opening of the story when a new Pharaoh arises who has no ties to the Joseph story. Everything changes for Jacob's family because of crisis many times. Life changes for us as it did for the Israelites. They had, to, uh, they had once found refuge in a foreign land and who had become many are now enslaved by the Egyptians. Now assigned to back-breaking labor, they are now the backbone of a flourishing Egyptian nation. And as their numbers increase, so also their burden. Life now is miserable for them. As the story unfolds, they pose a threat to the Egyptian pharaoh. As these Hebrews continue to increase, the pharaoh fears their growing population in 1-9. The pharaoh also worries that they will escape since cheap labor or slavery in this case is needed to maintain a monarchy such as pharaohs or in our modern time, Walmart. So three times, Pharaoh acts to stop their increase. First, he commands his officials to increase the burdens, so he sets taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. In 114, it states that the Egyptians became ruthless. But it states in 112 that the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. Oppression can't stop the increase of God's people. So in a second attempt to stop the Israelites' growth, the pharaoh designs a more murderous plan. He orders the two midwives of the Hebrews, Shipra and Pua, to kill the boys being born to the Israelites. It is clear that the pharaoh had confidence in these two women. These two women are to be the instruments of the king's violence that he could hide behind. So he hires women to do his dirty work. These women of life have been ordered to abandon their social role as midwives and become women of death instead of women of life. But the story tells us that the midwives feared God in 117. And, it, and as indicated by their actions, they reverence, the reverence for God far exceeds the respect for the king. They refused to act violently toward the women giving birth. They disobeyed Pharaoh and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them to do. They let the boys live. In refusing to cooperate with the Pharaoh's ruthless oppression, it states in 121 that God rewarded the midwives for their bravery and gave them families. God always honors right deeds and right decisions. Two times has the Pharaoh attempted to stop the increase in numbers among the Hebrews but has failed but this frail will not stop because once violence is in motion it continues so in a third attempt he issues a death order to be carried out by all his people in 122 it states then Pharaoh commanded all his people every boy that is born to the Hebrews you shall throw into the river Nile but you shall let the girls live But Pharaoh did not know that the sisters would be more dangerous than the men. The Pharaoh worries that because of the Hebrews increase, they will in the event of war, join our enemies and fight against us and escape. He was afraid. After this, the lens of our story narrows. It focuses on one of the Hebrews' household affected by the difficult times. Difficult times will always come in our lives. We watch, we watch one Hebrew woman's response to this threat to the death, to the life of her, child, of her newborn children. This woman is Moses' mother. Here we're going to see Moses' mother. First, consistent with the maternal instinct of a new mother, she hides the baby. But after three months, she admits to herself that she could not hide him any longer. So, Jesus, so she decides to set in motion a new plan to save her son. She gets a basket for him that she secures what has become his little ark, like Noah's ark. Then she sets him on the bank of the river. Exactly what she intends for him by this action is unclear. But one thing is clear, and that is that she intends for him to live. She will not submit to death. In this act, she refuses to surrender to Surrender his him to the destiny of Pharaoh, just like we should not surrender our faith to despair. In doing so, this powerless woman makes a decision to disobey the all-powerful Pharaoh. But the baby's future still remains in question. Will he live? Will he survive the river? Tension is increasing in the story when Pharaoh's daughter comes to bathe by the river. She and the maidservants are walking by the water when she spots a basket. Her maidservants fetch the basket. When the Egyptian princes open the basket, she sees the crying baby and her heart is moved. She feels compassion for the child. And although she knows that this must be one of the Hebrew children, she still took pity upon him. Without knowing she is setting in motion Israel's release from Egypt. Positioned at some distance, the baby sister recognizes signs of the princess' care and concern for the child. Her sudden presence before the princess and without permission to speak, the young girl seizes on the ripeness of the moment, like my wife does. My wife always seizes the ripeness of the moment, and I suspect that Chela does too. She offers to find a woman from among the Hebrews to nurse the infant. When Pharaoh's daughter agrees, the girl goes and returns with the baby's mother. The mother and infant are reunited. A decision for life reunites the mother and the son. Then Pharaoh's daughter commissions her to take this child and nurse it. She also agrees to pay the Hebrew woman. Now the mother is getting paid to nurse her own son. God is always in the story. According to their agreement, the child's mother then brings the boy to the daughter of Pharaoh after he is weaned. The Egyptian princess who knew he was a Hebrew child raises him as her own son. She calls him Moses, meaning to draw out. In this action by the princess, we see a picture of God drawing out Israel from Egypt. Here in this story, the issue of life is at the heart of the crisis among the women. It is about preserving life. Also, even though the infant has a name, which is Moses, most of the women characters in the Exodus story have no names. In the Bible, some women don't have names, so we always neglect them. And the only reason we know these women is because of the man they stand in relationship to. If it wasn't for the man, these women would not be mentioned. See, it's the opposite in my case. If it wasn't for my wife, my name wouldn't be mentioned. For instance, we know the princess only because she is the Pharaoh's daughter in 12.5. And the women accompanying her to the water are maidservants of Pharaoh's house. And the woman who gives birth to the child Moses is the wife of a man from the house of Levi. Then later, the mother receives further specification as Moses' mother. And finally, the girl watching over the infant by the water and later negotiating the care of the infant with Pharaoh's daughter is known to us as Moses' sister. This is like like mentioning Sister Julie as a pastor's wife, not as a pastor in her own right. But I believe what the pastor says, the boom is coming, and the tradition will fall. Right, Pastor? <laughs> here, here the prominence of man over women, which include fathers, husbands, by which nameless women uh, receive identification, it even expands to include infant sons, meaning that Moses' his mother and sister are identified with a reference to this male infant, Moses. In other words, in a man's world, even an endangered male baby in a river is less anonymous than the woman who saves him. Yet it is the women who are setting in motion the liberation of Israel. And also, the baby Moses, because he is a male, becomes a point of reference by which women in this story have identity and importance in this story. The only reason women have identity is because of Moses, the male. Also, it is extremely curious that two of the female characters in the story do have names. It is the midwives to the Hebrews, those sisters that, that are introduced by name, Shipra and Pua. They are not identified as being from their father's house, nor are they referenced as wives of any man like the rest of the women in fact they are named before even the baby Moses is mentioned or is introduced into the account they stand outside the world of man also while Pharaoh enlists their service it is not clear that they are members of Pharaoh's royal forces Egyptians or employees or Hebrews So it remains a mystery as to whether they are Hebrews or Egyptians. So even though we don't know who they are, they are, they have names. In fact, they are the only characters in this story to be named until the Pharaoh's daughter utters Moses' name at the end of the story. These two sisters are named before Moses is named. And even though we do not know anything about the women's uh, connections or who they are related to, the story does give us some information about them. Their brief description as midwives tell us something about who they are because of what they do. We know that as midwife, midwives, they work within the private sphere of women giving birth. In this context, such women were the angels, angels or angels of life. Utmost attention and fidelity were required in the miraculous, as well as the dangerous activity in which they participated. Midwives were the link between the womb and the world. How seriously did they take their responsibility? Well, not even a king's order for murder and the consequences of disobedience to such a command could dissuade these midwives from their vocation. They choose life over the command of death because to obey the king would be to betray. Their identity undercut their self-understanding as midwives. A bad decision undercuts our identity as Christians. Also, to abandon their responsibility will jeopardize more than their role as midwives because a midwife's infidelity to their role among the people would put the whole community at risk their decision would affect the whole community, just like our personal decisions affect the whole community. But the midwife's decision to disobey Pharaoh not only shows a kind of steadfastness of their profession, but the story tells us of a further motive. The midwives feared God. In the Hebrew tradition, fear of God did not mean worry or anxiety, but reverence toward God. It indicated a knowledge that sees and stands in awe of the mystery of God. Fear suggests a healthy reverence before this beautiful unknown. We need that healthy fear to make the decisions in our lives and in our marriages. When the midwives are confronted with the choice between obeying the Pharaoh they can't see and the God they cannot see, the decision to obey God is a witness to their great faith. They believe in the God of life, therefore they disobey Pharaoh, the God of death, and choose life. And in their decision to obey God, they not only deliver babies, but they also set in motion the deliverance of this enslaved people. Not only does the fate of Moses rest on their courageous decision, the future of the whole Hebrew people depend on their rejection of Pharaoh's murderous scheme. The nation of Israel rests on their decision. While we do not know who they are, that Shipra and Pua are named guarantees that there are Remember for their great deeds. Tell someone, don't forget the sisters. Outside the bond of man, let me repeat that again. Outside the bond of man and opposed to the commands of Pharaoh, these two women refused to act against other women. By this one deed, they changed the course of the story and the course of history by countering the oppression of Pharaoh. And once a faithful decision is made, it cannot be stopped because it's contagious. Because this faithful action is as infectious as the violent it opposes. Therefore, their life preserving action leads to another woman's decision to resist this deadly despot, Pharaoh. Now, Moses' mother also refuses submission to the tyrant's daily order, deadly order, because when she realizes she can no longer hide her infant, she, did, she resists despair, as we should resist despair. While the king orders that all boys' babies perish in the Nile, she counters her order by preserving her son in the Nile. In this act, she wills him to live in the face of an order for death. Not even death can conquer faith. Also, though powerless, she is willing to risk the consequences for a slave woman who defies the order of the all-powerful Pharaoh. And we can only imagine with horror what such a punishment might be. We could ask, what caused this act of courage? Did the deeds of the midwives inspire her to act in the interest of life? Perhaps she too feared God and understood a greater truth that the preservation of life would make demands on her personally. She would have to surrender her son in order to preserve him. She understood this before even Jesus spoke about it. But this story does not stop with Moses' mother's courage to preserve life because this courage against death cannot be stopped easily. Like I said before, this courage to stand for life affects others because it is contagious. Because as our story continues, this commitment to act in the interest of life spreads and is embraced by the daughter, Moses' sister. Here we see Moses' sister, placed in the story at the distance to wash the bassinet at the river's edge. She is at the river's edge, washing the bassinet. Even this young girl demonstrates her faith to resist death and choose life. While the story description of her attempts to contain her at the edge of the river, her character, her courage refuses to remain, washing at a distance. Faith and courage cannot stand at a distance, like a spectator. Because faith and courage has to join the ranks of the other women of faith. And let me add, I know Pastor Chela's not here but I have to add this here. Scripture might wanna keep this young girl by the edge of the river with no name and no voice. Man might wanna, man might wanna keep this young girl silent with no voice and no name. Pastors might wanna keep this young girl at the edge of the river, voiceless and nameless, but this young girl ain't gonna stay by the edge of the river because she has a voice and she has a name, and her name is Trela. And she's gonna shout, she's gonna dance, and she's gonna preach that the feral, that baby killer don't have the final word. Because this young girl knows that Jesus, the bread of life, the water of life, the resurrection and the life has a final word. Because this young girl from Hayward knows that one day God will blow with the wind and Pharaoh and all his demonic troops will lie dead in the sea. Because this young girl from Hayward knows that Pharaoh don't have the final word because this young girl read the book of revelation where jesus said i am the alpha and omega the first and the last and i have the keys to death and hell this young girl also read the gospel of john where jesus said i am the bread of life whosoever comes to me will never hunger hunger and whosoever believes in me will never thirst she also heard Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. Whosoever follows me will never walk in darkness. This young girl from Hayward standing by the edge of the river heard Jesus saying to her, I am the resurrection and the life, not Pharaoh, because I have the final word. So this young girl by the edge of the river Nile moves from the edge of the river Nile to the pulpit because she will not be denied. Now let me move on to the rest of the women. So when Pharaoh's daughter and her maid servants discover the child Moses, Moses', uh, uh, Moses sis- sister seizes a moment, like the other woman in this story, without fear or apology, we see her boldly speaking to the Egyptian princess. Moses' sister acts on her intuition, guided by faith and courage. Again, like my wife, and I think like Chela. So she knows that the baby needs to be. Nursed, and she knows someone among the Hebrew women who could help. So she says to the princess, shall I go and get you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse a child for you? The princess' response is yes, go. In this story, we've seen the death and the terror that man could bring, such as Pharaoh and such as us. We've seen that man have no limits when it comes to brutality. But here in this but here, in these women, we see the opposite of death. We see an Egyptian princess and a slave Hebrew girl coming together to preserve life. While men are out to take life, women in this story, such as the Egyptian princess, a Hebrew slave girl, are out to preserve life. Also, the Egyptian princess has acknowledged in the presence of a maidservant that the infant was a Hebrew boy. Therefore, the web of the women cooperating in the interests of life has now expanded even further to include the midservants, the maidservants. The commitment to life that began between two midwives and the Hebrew women they attended has now extended to this member, the princess of the Pharaoh's own family. Away from the palace where the men are, she is unconstrained. She can feel compassion even for a Hebrew child and act on those feelings. Her decision to preserve the child is an act of bravery we men know nothing about because a family member who acts against the king's orders risks more than disobeying the law. She chances chastisement of the royal household by making mockery of the king. Didn't the princes know that there would be consequences for even Pharaoh's own daughter if she publicly shamed her father? And were not the maid servants aware that they were also risking being held in contempt of the Pharaoh's plan? The maidservants of the princess must have known that they could be targets of blame in order to shift the guilt from the Pharaoh's daughter and save face. But like I said before, when women act with courage, it is contagious. Other women want to take hold of that, of that courage. It's like a wildfire spreading in the land. So when Moses' mother comes before the Egyptian princess, the dynamics of relationships between women that undercut the violence becomes widespread and explicit. First we see that the Egyptian princess orders Moses' mother to take the child to wean him. Then, follow, then follows, the, this follows a typical pattern of one with power giving command to the powerless. But the Pharaoh's daughter follows her command with a promise of payment for these services. Here the princess is not treating the mother of Moses as a Hebrew slave, but as an equal. This is the opposite of man. Man will want to place himself above other men. So what starts out as an exchange that that shows a social inequality between these two women, Egyptian princes and slaves, becomes a just agreement. The child's birth mother will wean the child, the adopted mother will pay her, the Hebrew woman gave birth to the child, and the Egyptian woman raises her as her son. Here we see an equal agreement between two women. Let me begin to conclude by saying that, in contrast to all the other stories of women at odds over the life of a child, such as the two cannibal mothers before a king in Second Kings six, or the two women being uh, bringing the, their dispute over the life of a child before Solomon, here in this story in Exodus, women are working together to preserve an infant's life. When we consider the story of the cannibal mothers or the two harlots before a king, or the story of Sarah and Hagar and the story of Rachel and Leah, we are surrounded with women who were burdened by a network of oppression and violence caused, caused by the superiority of men. In the Bible, men are a burden and a hindrance to women. So women are at odds with each other, just like these women I mentioned there, women at odds with one another appear on a setting for telling man stories or even for saying something great about man. Prophets, kings, patriarchs such as Abraham and Jacob. Women in the Bible are in the sidelines only to say something great about man. The violence and oppression surroundeth the characters of these mothers, the women cannot be denied or ignored. We cannot ignore the oppression of women caused by men. We see that in the Bible, and we see that here in society. Though the women's characters may be minor in this story in Exodus, they teach us men about privilege, power, violence and the value of life. In our journey to build our own character and what we as men can learn from women of faith and courage. Man may talk about unity, but what they really mean is their own agenda. For all the honor and for all the horror and travesty of these stories where women are at odds with each other, such as the cannibal mothers, stories like the Exodus account act as a counter story and reveals what can happen when people work together. When people work together, there is life, and the church grows. In this network of cooperation, the dividing lines of race, social class, and age are crossed. We could call it border crossing, or cruzando la frontera, where we cross each other's borders to get to know each other. These women in the Exodus story, inspired perhaps by Sheepra and Pua, who appear to stand outside a man's world, we see a mother and a daughter work together. We see a woman of the royal class cooperating with a woman from the servant class. We see that maid servants are made accomplices with the plan of a princess. We see an adult woman, the princess, go along with a young girl's proposal, Moses' sister. The race differences of Egyptians and Hebrews are broken. Things that divide are overcome. All the lines that divide and set people from one another are broken in this story. And in the process, the network of division and violence is at the heart of a man's world, of machismo and rule is abandoned. And as as a result of this insult to man's power, life is not only preserved, Life is nourished in such a way that the entire people, people is eventually liberated from the bondage of Egypt. Tell someone, thank God for the sisters. We could even say, we could even say that it wasn't Moses who was called by God who liberated Israel from Egypt. But these women who were also called by God, who feared God and loved the infant and cooperated with one another that liberated Israel from Egypt. In Exodus, if you're familiar with it, we see Moses cowardly to liberate Israel from Egypt. But here we see no cowardly women. Here we see when people are willing to acknowledge their differences, are willing to cross lines that divide them, whether it's theological differences, or preaching methods, or everyday practical differences, we can create a community, a church, that Jesus envisioned in John 17. Such determination of these women to work together is good news, is the gospel that Jesus taught in John 17. And Paul taught in Ephesians 4. These women were preaching the gospel before Jesus and Paul. So let us not forget where it all started. With Sister Shepra and Sister Pua. Because if it wasn't for the faith and courage of these sisters, Shepherd and Sister Pua, the deliverance of Israel from Egypt would not have happened. Or at least been delayed. Moses would have died in the Nile. So we need to thank God for the sisters of faith and courage who defied the powerful, the power of Pharaoh and stood by faith with the power of God. I want all the men to stand up and applaud the women of the past and all the women of the present. Amen. I know the women you can sit down. I know the women deserve more than that, but that's about all we could give you tonight. Because you women who are present here today are heirs or inheritors of the faith and courage of these women in the Exodus story. You are heirs. You might believe you can never have the faith and courage of these women in the Exodus story because of your past. Maybe because men have treated you as something worthless, something only to be used and, di- and then discarded, like I, like I treated many women. But Sister Shepra and Sister Puah and all the slave women in Egypt and the princess are here to remind you that your past condition of slavehood will not determine your present or your future because now you are free. Now you are free to have the same faith and courage as sisters Shepra and Pool and the rest of the sisters in the Exodus story. You sisters can also help us man to increase our faith and courage and fight against the enemy that comes against our household. So don't let the past stop you from exercising your faith and courage as these sisters and the Exodus stories did. And let me finish by confessing that my wife has more faith and courage than I do. My wife is like these sisters in the story because the faith and courage that was contagious and is in motion and these sisters in the Exodus story has moved from 3,000 years ago in Egypt to the present and got hold of my wife. Now. She's contagious without faith. She tells me all the time when she goes out to the store. She tells me all the time when she goes to the gas station that that she's always talking to people about Christ. She came back and tells me, oh, we had a prayer meeting over here at the Safeway with these women here and stuff like that. Faith is contagious. They don't have to stay back there 300, 3,000 years because it has moved on to us. Now she is a woman of faith and courage who is willing to defy any enemy that would come against her family or even strangers that she meets at a grocery store. My wife did not let her sexual abuse or divorce of the past destroy her faith and courage in the present. She trusted God and she feared God. And now she got me. We've been been married now 40 years. Not a perfect marriage, but a good marriage. So let that faith and courage that began with Sister Shepherd and Pooh and that, and that is in my wife and Pastor Chela, affect you also. In this story, we don't know the exact age of the women, but we can guess that some were young while others were a little older. This means that contagious faith affects all ages, whether young or old. No woman is exempt from this contagious faith. In this church, we have young women and older women. And none of you are exempt from this contagious faith. The faith that was in Sister Shepra and Sister Pua and Moses' mother and the princess and her maidservants and Moses' sister and my wife and Pastor Chela can also be yours. You may be standing by the river's edge like Moses' sister was, like Chela was, but contagious faith cannot remain by the river's edge. Because contagious faith can remain as a spectator. Because contagious faith has to join the other women of faith in this story. And every young woman and older woman here in this church are heirs or recipients of this contagious faith. All you need to do is embrace it. And as we embrace this contagious faith, the church will grow. Uh, I want to call Pastor... uh, our pastor, to uh, say a few words. I don't know if my wife would want to say a few words.